Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking Podcast. You know the drill. Write a review, share with a friend, subscribe, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got returning champ, State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. We get into a lot of topics, including the hotly contested mayoral race here in New York City, uh, the difficulties the Board of Elections is currently facing, and lastly, just how hard it is to run a campaign. So kick your feet up and enjoy. Hey, everyone. We're, we're really uh, pumped. We have our friend uh, Senator Alessandro Biaggi back on the pod. And it is Thursday here. We're two days removed from the second batch from the primaries here in New York City. As of now, Brooklyn Borough President uh, Eric Adams, or former Bro- Brooklyn Borough President, seems to be in the lead and most likely the nominee for the Democrats. So we got a lot to talk about, but welcome back. I am happy to be here to talk about probably one of the most covered races um, that we've seen in New York in a very long time, and amongst many other important topics, of course. <laughs> things that have to be changed and things that are broken, but I'm very happy to be here with you guys, seriously. Yeah. Well, can we, before we get into the actual candidates, can you break down or at least from your vantage point, talk a little bit about the, you know, the board of elections and just kind of what happened there, because we're reading a lot about it and we're hearing that it's been a disaster for a while, but I think for the average person, including myself, I have no idea what that actually means. Yep. So For everybody who doesn't know about the Board of Elections in New York City, um, hopefully this will give some light into a very dark place in our government, like really dark, like behind the key, behind the fortress door. It's a place where political patronage has upheld the walls of the BOE. And that is because the New York City Board of Elections essentially has political appointees um, that are running our elections. So what does that mean? It means that Every political party chair of all five boroughs, right, Republican, Democrat, so of course each borough has one of each, um, gets to appoint people to represent them in the Board of Elections, and the New York City Council has to vote up or down whether or not those people can be affirmed. Usually the city council functions as this like rubber stamp. So we're not doing anything that's like out of the ordinary when it's just people are going through. It's very common that a party chair will pick somebody, usually their friend or an ally or somebody that they know will do what they need to win the elections and keep things in order or kick people off of ballots or do whatever needs to happen to keep their power in place. And then they get into the board of elections and they are running the elections of New York City, one of the most significant, important and influential cities in the world. Why does that matter? Because these are not professional people. These are not civil servants. These are not people who even get training about how to run elections. And so what the outcome is, is it's really unfortunate. The obvious outcome is what we see. It's incompetence. Not even, I feel like, for their own fault. It's incompetence because they never were qualified in the first place, right? When you pick your friend to represent your borough in an election body and they don't know what they're doing because they've never done this before and they're 
you know, well into another career, of course, they're not going to know what they're doing. So essentially, lots of them are set up for failure. Um, And so the most important glaring thing is we need to professionalize the board of elections. And then following that, it means that these are individuals who should be civil servants, like many of the other appointees in our government. And then I think from those two small things, although there's more things that we could do, from those two small things, we can make sure that the people inside know what they're doing. I mean, it sounds like I'm making this up because it sounds ridiculous to even say that, but that is what's going on. And so I think when you dovetail that with ranked choice voting, which I'm sure that we'll get into in a second, um, a lot of people I'm sure you all saw on Twitter were like, oh, the board of elections and the counting and this misnumbering and like whatever's going wrong is because of ranked choice voting. It's not because of the board of elections. It's because of ranked choice voting. Like, see, everybody, we told you this was bad. We should eliminate ranked choice voting. When the reality is that the board of elections in New York City has been failing for a lot of years now. In 2016, they admitted to intentionally throwing off the rolls in Brooklyn 200,000 voters. Um, They broke state and federal laws for doing that. And they were under a consent decree and made some kind of arrangement to say that they would, quote unquote, do better. Well, fast forward to the 2020 election when people in Brooklyn, again, Brooklyn, were getting the wrong uh, absentee ballot to their house with somebody else's name on it. And there was talk about, well, maybe we won't actually replace that. Maybe we'll just like, you know, ask that you either show up at the polls or like, too bad, see you next time which is outrageous in a con- in an election as consequential as the 2020 election was because when you take it for granted that New York is just going to be a blue state obviously things can go wrong. And so you just you know put these like things in a, in a in a long straight line and what you can see is just a history of problems that are it, it's really completely unrelated to ranked choice voting and um, it's all about political patronage. So we've got to change that. The political parties benefit and the people don't and that's just not acceptable. This feels very Tammany Hall era. Tammany Hall. <laughs> it is Tammany Hall. It's like Boss Tweed is in, like the, like the ghost of Boss Tweed is in the Board of Elections, like pulling the levers down, like throwing the things away. And that's what it feels like. And it's so absurd because, I mean, if New York was Georgia, if New York was another red state, could you ima- can you even imagine the uprising with all of the things that have gone wrong here? If this was a red state, people across the country would be losing their minds. There would be lawsuits filed. And I wish that they would still lose their minds and lawsuits would still be filed against New York because this is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about like complacency and um, the lack of urgency around government. I think people, again, think about New York as this blue state. It's not blue if we're not vigilant. And just because we have a blue sticker or a blue sign or a majority Democrats in office doesn't mean that those people who say that they're Democrats are actually people who care about the people they represent. So we have to be really clear about what we're talking about when we're talking about these things. Do you find that, or at least historically, that the appointees to the Board of Elections, are they usually just kind of one-time obedient partisans and then they just go back into private industry or are they usually or is it usually an entry point where they have political aspirations and then they you know are launching careers off of their appointments I haven't seen actually either what I've seen is like and I'm just going to give you one example again one example of many different permutations of who could be put into this place um and the one example that I'm choosing to think about is um, an older woman, right? So she's like had a career, now she's older, but she's definitely an ally of the 
Democratic Party in one of the boroughs, um, the Bronx, and then gets appointed and is just in there. And it's like, there really isn't an aspiration to go anywhere else. And there, you know, your career is kind of done. So this is like your last stop on the trail of your journey. But because of that, you are loyal to the person and the entity that appointed you and also confirmed you. And so it's, it's, I feel like that's even like almost worse because, because if you have political aspirations and maybe you'll think to yourself, I better not get this wrong. Like I better like try to get this right, or at least give the appearance that I'm getting it right. That's not necessarily what we have. And then people stay in there for years. And I think that's also another, another problem. They're just content with their piece of power. And just like, below, again, it's like below average. It's like, oh, this person can like <laughs> fit this puzzle piece, like put them in that corner and like, they got it. Like sit in the chair with like, you know, you look at the role, but like behind the person, it's like glossed over eyes, like has no idea what's going on. doesn't even care. And like, right. what's the impact? There's eight or nine million New York City residents who might not have their voice heard because <laughs> you wanted to pick your friend. <laughs> like. Are you kidding? Like, give me a break. Like, that's so unacceptable. And just to zoom out for a second, like, and I, I'll probably say this a million times today, New York City is such an important place in the world. It's not just a city that is in the United States or even in New York. Obviously, there's many cities in New York. There's Buffalo and Syracuse and Rochester. New York City is like the central place where countries look at for guidance and influence and leadership. When we get things wrong, we lose our ability to say that New York is the best at X. And I know that New Yorkers have that like sense of pride when we leave New York and we go other places and people ask us, where are you from? And you're like, I'm a New Yorker. I'm from New York City. People, you, I feel proud about that. Like it makes me feel really good, except when things like this happen. And then it becomes really a national and international embarrassment. You expect something like an election to not go well or to for numbers or ballots to be counted, right, in some faraway place. And yet here it is in our backyard. So, I mean, thank God for social media. Thank God for people like all of you who care about these things and who are going to bring this information to maybe not everyone who's like scrolling through Twitter and their whole feed is like Politico and like all these different reporters who are talking about it. But that's the whole point. It's that like everybody needs to understand that New York is the only place in the country, the only place in this country that does elections in New York City like this. Like that, that is that's not acceptable. So, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the ranked choice process. We were just talking about it before you came on. I think it would be nice uh, to see it more widely adopted. Although the deeper you go, of course, you really <laughs> you really need like bulletins of research to go through. I've even found myself in the in in the voting box, like with my phone, like scrolling through trying to do yeah. deeper research on like judge appointments. But um, how do you, how do you feel that, feel that it went? I know. Can we talk about judge appointments like later? Maybe if we have like a few seconds left, because that's a whole other can of worms. That's like very confusing to people, even like myself, because you're like, who are these candidates? Where, where's their it's website? It's so hard. So hard. Um, but I mean, I, before I answer that question though, I mean, how did you all feel about ranked choice voting besides you, obviously, Barbara, because you liked it. And I mean, I agree with you on that. Like, I felt like this is a democratic way to do things. And I'll tell you why I really felt that way. But like, did you enjoy it? Do you guys find it confusing? Did you feel like there was enough outreach? Because that was my biggest concern that people didn't understand how it worked. 
I don't even know what that is, to be honest with you. <sighs> and that's <laughs> like that that makes me really upset because that's a failure, you know? Yeah, I don't know what it is. I tried to actually I became very disillusioned with politics in twenty twenty after doing a, a political tour and I'm just like I'm I'm so impressed with people like yourself and I have to ask like why how and why did you even get into into yeah. this this mess messiness and I know someone has to do it someone has to enact change but man it's like it's hard such a shit show such it a is. circus Gee. circus so give the 30 seconds to Alessandra on on this bus tour that you were on so she has a little understanding of kind of even where that feeling came from sure the 30 seconds is I was on a tour with this group called Vote Common Good that basically went across the nation um, in midterm elections and then in the 2020 election. A group of uh, former Republican conservatives and evangelist Christians going deep into red territories to appeal to Christians to vote with morality instead of party allegiance. Mm. So, you know, I had a chance to meet all of the major candidates and kind of follow along with what was going on in a deeper way than I had before. Cause I come from an um, entertainment activist rapper background mm-hmm. and it was just, man, like the things that I saw, like that my eyes were open up to, it just really made me fall back from politics. Like the whole system at its core mm-hmm. is rotten. It is. Right. And so, yeah, that's, that's the 30 seconds on that. Wow. That's okay. First of all, you did something that like I want to really do. I think that's um, really like I'm really intrigued by that. And I want to talk to you more about it because that sure. seems really powerful. And also, you're not wrong. Like what you're saying is not, it's not wrong. And I'll tell you once a day, I really mean this. I sound, I know I, I can be, we don't know each other that well, but. Barbara knows, like, I could be very, like, over-the-top dramatic and, like, oh, like, this isn't the worst thing I've ever seen. And it's, like, it's really not the worst thing I've ever seen. But I'll just tell you (laughs) what you're saying about, like, things being rotten and, like, at its core, it is true. And it's also what makes me want to do this because I feel like in order to, like, flip that switch, you have to, like, go in as this, like, I almost see myself as like spiking the punch. Like the punch is like made, everyone's drinking it and they're like, this is really good. And I'm just like, boop. And they're like, ah, what's that? What's that? I hate that taste. And it's like, it's for your health. Like, just trust me. Like, it'll be really good. But there's like, people are like spitting it out. They don't even want to go back to the punch table. That's kind of how I feel. And it's really tiring and exhausting. And it's really hard because people are not really nice. And, and that's going to sound almost like, like, what am I, Pollyanna? No, I think that there's like common decency and like being a human being on the earth. And like, we've seemed to have lost that in politics. In addition to the fact that like a lot of people are here, not because they actually care about people, which is so ironic. And it's like taking a million little like spikes, which is kind of how I see like a lot of the insurgent candidates and like dropping them in. It's kind of how things are getting like like we're breaking walls down, but we're not doing it fast enough. In my opinion, I have like urgency always in my like blood. And so that concerns me, but I once a day want to like ripcord. I'm just like, why am I doing this? Like, this is crazy because the things that the the backlash that I get for things that are not even controversial, like, Hey, maybe don't influence an ethics ruling. 
I don't know, just like sit back and let the people who need to vote rule uh, vote without you influencing it. Maybe that would be like something good. Yeah. It's like, how dare you say that? Why do you think that you should? It's like, what are you talking about? Right? Like it's upsetting. It's just, it's really deeply upsetting. And, and yet like, I also know there is not one thing in the earth that we interact with. That's not political. Like even the air in this room I'm breathing is political. Because somebody decided that more trees will go outside of this neighborhood than in maybe a neighborhood a mile away, right? I'm in Pelham, New York, in Mount Vernon, New York, which is a city in Westchester County, less than a mile away. It is 0.2 miles from where I am right now. Their infrastructure is crumbling and they haven't updated their tax registry since 1964. Pelham just did it last month. It is the blackest city north of the Mason-Dixon line. We have problems, like serious problems, and those problems are related to politics. And so part of my joy of it is that I get to point these things out and like try to hold people accountable, but it's not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy, but I understand why you feel that way because I feel that way too. I'm like, why do I do I do this? Like I could just go somewhere. Yeah, and I'm so grateful that there are people like yourself, so many of y'all like fighting the good fight at that level because like my sensitive soul can't take it. I'd rather just, you know, do what I can to help the people around me, help my community. But man, like, I swear, but G, you, I, I didn't feel like this to. before that tour. I didn't but G, feel like, you were like it, this You were in the belly right? of the beast, G. That's like, it don't get no crazier than that. Like, that's no. what you were doing was not, you know, at this sort of state politi- uh, politics level of Vermont or something. You were like down south. (laughs) Yeah, you inside. (laughs) That's terrifying what you did. (laughs) That's as that's as crazy as it gets, I think, G. I I think the amount of misinformation and alternate realities that I experienced made me feel like how can we possibly come to a place where we are viewing these issues in the same light? How can we possibly come to a place where we can have actual educated civil discourse around these issues like it just like at at its core of like the way information was being consumed by the average american i was like oh we're fucked we like, are in a way we are in a way and also we're not in a way and i know this is like not the whole point of why we're here but i'm also really enjoying this so just you guys cut me off at any time cut us off because i think this is actually really important and like this is why the BOE is like this in New York City, just to like draw a line here. It's because of this, like underinvesting and closing down local newspapers. Local newspapers are essential to democracy and also to making sure that the leaders at the municipal and state level are accountable. And yet they are getting shut down across the country or being bought up by venture capital firms. So having independent newspapers is really important to invest in. Also, like this place that we're in today didn't happen just like in 10 years. It was like decades of strategic planning from the right. Mm. And underinvestment in education is key here because just comparing people who have access to education, who learn things a certain way, even the process of learning, like, are you open-minded? Do you think about things? Are you curious? Versus like rigidity and like focused on like extreme and like just religion-based only. Like, I think both things can exist in the same world, especially in this country. I just think we've, we've really, the Democrat, Democratic Party in general has, I don't know what was going on for 30 years. Like, we're like, we're like all the people in power now, just like, 
Oh, look at those Republicans filling people in those waterboard positions. So weird. Like, what's going on? I don't know. But let me get back to my thing over here. They must have known something that was going on. And I, it's not about blame. It's more about like, I want to hear them say, you know what? We did know something was going on and we didn't do something about it. And now we know. And so here's our plan. The lack of strategy to like get to a stasis mm. point is what keeps me up at night. Because you're right. Like, how do we even find common ground? And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot of things. It's also going to take like being in relationship with these people because nothing works when it's easy to just be like, oh, you're not human to me, right? Like, oh, okay. You're like some Republicans, I'm like, I don't even want to breathe in the same air as you. And yet, like, if I think that way, we're going to get nowhere very quickly. And it's almost 100%. like working to the advantage of who's trying to divide us. It's just hard. 100%. It's so hard. It's the only way it works. I remember I was reading an article and of uh, I'm totally blanking on um, the congresswoman who was like had like the revenge porn situation. Was it Katie Smith in California? Right? Yeah, I, I might be butchering her name, but she actually was friends with Matt Gates, and obviously that friendship didn't go anywhere. But mm-hmm. she used to get a lot of shit for it, and I don't mind that she at least tried to have a friendship. Granted, it didn't go anywhere. I I think we have to figure out how we can create these situations, even when they don't work, because there has to be some semblance of a line. It doesn't mean you have to be buddy-buddy with people. But um, at a certain point in time, uh, you can play hardball, but you still have to have some semblance of a line of communication open. Katie Hill. This this is the most important thing. Katie Hill. Katie Hill. From California, right? Yes, yes. I think yeah. she was a House member. Yep. Yeah. And she had to, or she didn't have to, but she resigned. Yes, she resigned right. because of the revenge porn. Yep. I want to just say a learning that I've had about what you just said, because I think about RBG and Scalia, and it's like at first, the first time I heard about their friendship, I was like, "Oh my god! Like, how can the how in the world, right?" And the more that I do this work and the more that I'm here, it's really easy. And I I can say this as somebody who like has the passion for it and like wants to just like right the wrongs. Like it's easy to spike people and just be like, you're bad, you're wrong. Like, boom, like I'm going to call your ass out and like, this is what's going to happen. It's harder (laughs) to have a conversation in a way that's like productive because, and that will, even if it moved like the conversation forward, like a millimeter because it is just harder. And I think about this when it comes to the Bronx Democratic chair. And so if he ever listens to this, like this is my thought process. And so like welcome into my head about it. But like, you know, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And I don't agree with the Bronx Democratic Party and how they have functioned historically. And I think that there's hope for them in the future because they have different leadership now. But part of how I think about it is like, well, I could just make him bad and never talk to him and wish him the worst and hope that all his candidates lose and that's the end of it. Or I can take my stand in the things that I care about, have my boundaries of where I will not cross and still have a relationship with him enough to be able to pick up the phone and be like, what that was, not good. I wouldn't have done that. So that he at least has a listening for me as opposed to like, here she comes, turn off the ears and run away. That's hard, but it's it's a learning I feel like I can understand more that I didn't understand in my first year. How do you, and I know we want to move on to, to, to Adams, but last question, um, Alessandra, how, how do you, like politics is the art of compromise, right? The 
two chambers in Congress, the great compromise, you know, one of the original compromises. That's what it is. You cut deals. Yeah. But yeah. How, how, how do you find middle ground with whether it's the opposition party or faction of the opposition party that like where effectively middle ground with them would be like, oh, you want to injure my people? Well, I'll let you injure them a little bit rather than a lot. That's the middle ground that we can find. Like, how do you find a middle ground when it's it, it's just like. Like you can't like it. This oh, I want I want no injury to my people. Well, then we can't find middle ground. Like how, how do you how do you even navigate that? It depends. It depends. And so I think about it like this. Obviously, each legislative body, state by state house, is different in terms of what party's in power. If the Republicans are in power and they're willing to work with the Democrats, I think that as a Democrat, you are obligated to move the needle forward on things that you can find common ground on, even if it's not the whole pie. And the reason is because doing nothing is not an option, right? So like, I think that in some ways, I think we see that across the country in the Alaska legislature. Um, I had a conversation with a state legislator there who actually talked a lot about that. And I have this rejection to that feeling because again, just like I mentioned earlier, I have like all or nothing, like we're like winning or we're not doing this at all. Like a hundred, but not zero. Like I'm not going to be a 51%. It's like, we're going all or like, I'd rather, I'd rather not be involved. And what I have learned, especially in New York, where it's not the Republicans in charge, it's the Democrats in charge, is that I have to know where my lines are. And so the best example of this for me is like, I am willing to spike a bill if the most important part of the bill is being taken out, right? And this happened with sexual harassment laws in New York in 2019. Um, when we were negotiating with the assembly, they had tried to take out a, essentially the meat of the bill without, and tried to sell it as if it wasn't taking out the meat of the bill, but I intimately knew it. And so I was like, no, I'm actually willing to not do this bill at all because doing that would actually cause more harm than if we did what you're saying, right? Like, or did, did what I'm saying. So like, it just, it just didn't work. Like we can't do things just for show because right. then what would happen is the next year we come back and we're like, well, let's fix that. And they're like, no, 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 last year we did that thing. Remember we did that? You got to like know where the line is. But at the same time, I've had bills where maybe like all five provisions, they don't want it. They want three. All right. I'm okay with that because it doesn't take away the essence of the bill. So let's move forward with three but they know I'm going to come back for those other two. And it happened with health insurance, with the Healthy Terminals Act. We got health insurance for airport workers. They took out one of the airports and I could have at that moment said, well, F this bill and forget about JFK and LaGuardia because you didn't include this airport you know, in the Hudson Valley. But I said, no, JFK and LaGuardia airport workers need health insurance. Like they just do. They have they have had colleagues who have died during Ebola. They were given like paper masks. They, they've been waiting for this for a long time. They deserve it. Let's move forward. And then called out the fact that the governor's office removed that airport and like called called in people who would want to advocate for that airport, the legislators in that area. And so there's a way to do it, but it's it is not easy. Because you don't right. want to leave anybody behind, and you don't want to—you never want to compromise your values. Right. It's like riding Perfect. two horses at the same time in a circus, just like G <laughs> said, the circus. It is. It's like in opposite directions. It's crazy. It right. <laughs> They're going opposite directions. Yeah. Crazy. You're like, how can I go forward and backwards? Like, <laughs> <laughs> now, like, on a ride. 
it feels like that. I feel like I get whiplash. It does. Wow. It really does. Mentally. It's hard. It's hard. You know. Well, talking about hard, we got to get into the mayoral primary where mm-hmm. maybe it was just even, what, it was like less than 24 hours, I think, that Eric Adams was has been projected to be the winner of the uh, the primary uh, mm-hmm. that took place here uh, in New York City. Yeah. Um, what do y'all think about that? So I'm going to like say something and I want to like know, I don't know what you guys think first, but so I was, I live in Westchester County. So the benefit, <laughs> and that's because my district's also in Westchester County. I'm not like given any kind of like scoop here, like, oh, she's lived her district. No, I do. Right. My right. district's in Westchester County. Um, and so I actually didn't get to vote in the mayoral, obviously, because I represent a huge portion of the Bronx. Like I can affect and influence other people to think a certain way or whatever. And I fully take responsibility right. for that. Um, but I think that this mayoral election was messy. I think democracy is messy in general, but I think this was extra messy and it was painful at certain points. Cause I had started out this process endorsing Scott Stern, who was a mentor to me and somebody that I consider to be a friend And my God, talk about like your values come knocking at the door and like, here's your friend who you also believe will be the best person to run the city, who has the best heart. And yet like in comes a woman now too, who said that he had sexually harassed slash sexually assaulted them. As somebody who, this is like my, this is my issue and I'm a survivor and I'm just like, I can't really explain in words even quite yet. I'm I'm actually trying to write about it just to make it really clear for myself and also for other people who've asked me this question. Like it was so painful. However, I had to make a decision, right? And the decision ultimately was to take away my endorsement, to withdraw my endorsement because my values and the way that I am principled needs to be consistent no matter who it is. We can get into the whole, you know, the details of that probably in a whole other episode of this podcast. Um, but it was a painful process. And it was painful, number one, because again, he was he is a friend and a mentor. And number two, because I actually felt like the withdrawal of the endorsement meant there was going to be a whole domino of people withdrawing. And I believe that he was the best candidate for New York. And I did not think that anybody was at the same level as him. So we had to recalibrate and take a step back and take a deep breath and think about like, you know, the candidates, every candidate is imperfect. That's a different level, but every candidate is imperfect. Some, some become so imperfect that they're disqualified from running. And I just, it, it was hard. It was a hard election because I didn't necessarily feel like other people called to me as much. So I don't know. Thank you for sharing that with us. That sounds really hard and conflicting. It was really, really hard. To your point, this was also your, this is your issue, which was just like, it just, there's multiple layers for you. And the second this came out, I immediately thought of you and I was like, holy shit. This is like such a, just, um, it's a mind fuck. Um, and it was, and like, you know, my husband, I'll just give you some more insight. Cause I think also people should know this. This is like an important thing that I think, you know, leaders hopefully share like what goes on with them as it, on a human level, the day that it, that we were like trying to figure out what cost, like, what do we do here? 
I mean, I was like beside myself in a way that my husband was like, I have never seen you like this. And the reason for that is because of course I was crying. Of course I felt overwhelmed. Of course I felt sad and like just conflicted, even though I knew ultimately, you know, when you, you, all of us know what the right thing is to do. You know, from jump, like I know what the right thing is to do. That's not really the problem. Actually, it's not been the problem for me. The problem is like, how do I get there without causing harm to people that I care about, but also upholding values that this is usually where this becomes difficult. And I mean, I broke down in, in front of my team. I had cried. I mean, it was really hard. And yet, like, if you don't lean on the people who also are there because they believe in you or your team or your family while you're in these roles or doing this work, I don't know how you survive because if you're in this and you don't feel something, you don't actually like feel impacted by some of the things we do. I think you have to stop and think to yourself, like, am I really here for the right reasons? Because what we do is human work. Like we're talking about people's lives every day and you can't help but feel it if you're actually invested. So yeah, it was, it was hard, but I think, I think regardless of the outcome, New York is inevitable and that we are going to be okay. So we can get yep. into that in a minute, but that's how I, that's how I ultimately feel. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, Scott, Scott Stringer on paper was the most, had the most credentialed, right? He, he'd been working his entire life for this role. So I can understand on that end. It was very interesting because we had Diane Morales on our pod very early on when she was kind of a, a bit of a blip still. And so after the announcement with Scott, you know, she was kind of the progressive darling, at least for a few months. And so we were really, you know, watching her and to see her implosion Mm -hmm. was a whole, you know, (laughs) I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like what happened to her. And I think, I don't want to totally derail because I want to get into Eric Adams, but I, I will say that she on paper at that point seemed to be the most progressive candidate. On paper. I on paper, obviously people talk about her charter background and all the other things. So, but I do find it interesting. I think from what I've always heard, almost every um, campaign is a shit show because no one has, there's like no money really to go around. Everyone's overworked. So the issue of the unionization is an important one. I did find it a little bit interesting that she was at that point, almost kind of the last super progressive candidate and the, and the campaign decided to blow it up as yep. opposed to having someone. I know, I, I guess like that's to me like a chess move decision. And I don't know if I fully agree with that, but like to each its own. So where we ended, I I voted, Ed and I both voted for Maya as our one and Catherine as our two. The reason I think we both were on the same page. Maya was the most progressive person that, you know, we just coalesced around. And then when we looked at who was in the top three, Catherine seemed to be the most palatable person who could get the job done. Uh, We did not vote for Eric, but when looking at the numbers, and I really want to see the age numbers, but I was just looking at the map of the city. It was almost like (laughs) uh, the New York Times, like more white section of New York City, like parts of Manhattan into like Brooklyn Heights and Carroll Gardens all went Catherine Garcia. The area around like Williamsburg, Fort Greene, parts of Bed-Stuy that's kind of in the gentrified zone went Maya. And then the 
kind of Hasidic areas, the Staten Island, and deeper areas into Brooklyn, the Bronx, when Eric Adams. And I find mm-hmm. that so interesting that the progressive base, at least I saw on Twitter, hated Adams, but he won yeah. poor working class Black and Latino neighborhoods. So yeah. I, that is, I think there's probably an age breakdown there. Um, but what are your thoughts? I have so many thoughts and I'm going to try to consolidate <laughs> them into like a really like digestible way for the people who are listening to even hear what I'm saying. So there's a few factors playing a role in this. Media is at the top of the chain. When you look at the coverage of the of this election cycle, about 90 to 95% of coverage was the mayor's race. Now, why I say that first is because guess what? There was a whole other set of races. You got the comptroller's office, pretty powerful, important position. I mean, we had some really awesome candidates and some high profile candidates that I think could have probably benefited from getting a little more attention around what the job is and why New Yorkers should care. And then you also have this other branch of government. And when we talk about balancing government and and also part of why I don't feel like we're totally off a cliff and like we should all go home and forget about it is because we have this New York City Council, the most powerful city council in the country, is now going to be the most diverse. And that's not just diverse by gender. It's diverse um, by sexuality, by religion, by race. I mean, it's the most diverse New York City Council in the history of the council. That's remarkable, okay? And yet those races, they got a little bit of attention, but not as much as I think that they deserved. And so that skewed, I believe, the outcome also of the race. Because when you remember early on, a lot of the coverage was around Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang. Everything he did, every minute, it felt like we were just obsessed with Andrew Yang. And, you know, I think about him and I think about him in almost a tragedy because that man has a gift and the gift is galvanizing people. He can pull people Mm -hmm. to come and see him and listen to him. But he also stops there. If he cultivated his platform and learned and listened and was advised and studied, I think that he could be a remarkable leader. But he didn't do that second point, that second part. And that the other 50% really matters to people who are going to vote, especially primary voters, and also to New Yorkers. I think New Yorkers are not surface level voters. We're going to go deep and figure out who is running and why. So I think the media played a massive role in the coverage. I think that it was really late in the game when they started covering Adams in a more serious way. And I thought that was problematic because Adams has a lot of experience in government and also some troubled experiences too. He has some ethics, the questions about ethics and his um, use of funds for development, um, his time in the New York State Senate. I mean, there's a lot of things that we could just like, who is Eric Adams? Like, let's just get to know this guy. And it became really late in the game when we started to do that. Obviously, some New Yorkers know him. Um, he is and does have a credible history of reforming police um, and being like an in, inside person because he was a, a former police officer. So he is considers himself like insurgent in that way. Let's see, because, you know, there is a whole history of stop and frisk um, in his uh, in his portfolio that I don't think that many of us who are trying to see policing be reformed in New York City, especially after the past two summers, um, really are going to have a tolerance for. So let's see what he does. Uh, I think it's one of my biggest concerns actually about him. But 
I think the media plays a big role in that. And then I ultimately think that there is a little bit of voter fatigue um, when it comes to elections. Part of that, again, is because New York City and New York State have had probably more elections in the past three to four years than um, I think that, and people paying attention to it, meaning there's canvassers, there's people calling you, there's people texting you. And I think some people were just like, I don't want to pay attention to this or like, I don't, you know, I'll think about it when it's like later, later in the game. And sometimes later is too late. And then you vote according to maybe like, you know, the people that you're in community with, and maybe that's not necessarily the best person for you to vote with. So the moderate, the progressives, I think the lesson for progressives is that, and they're going to, you know, I am a progressive unabashedly. I am part of the left and I'm proud of it. And I wear that very proudly, but we got to get better at electoral politics because that's how we win. It's not to say that we haven't won. We did a lot of amazing things at the city council level. We had a lot of races that we should be all very proud of. And we did win in those races. Those are smaller districts. That's not as much power as the mayor or a governor's race. So if we want to level it up and really take it to the next level, I think we're going to need some more strategy. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that because if we don't acknowledge that, we will not win big in the future. And so it's painful, but the only way to, to fix that and to transform that is to accept it. And like, let's get on the same page. And the Diane Morales thing, I mean, I could see that from a mile away because I had done my research on her. And again, the media, I didn't feel like covered her or even held her to account in the way where I think if certain questions were asked, we would have known a little more sooner. You know, again, it's like, the sheen is what the media loves. And that unfortunately is not necessarily the substance or the person who's the most qualified candidate. So those two things I think are at the top, but I'm not sure what you guys think about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said a lot of things. I know I, I, it's provocative a little bit, but. I wonder, I agree with Yang. I mean, he's, you know, fresh off of the presidential race. He's just like riding the, um, the continuity of, of just being in, in, an internet meme, which he's he's used to his advantage plenty of times, but also just you know the the coverage. But he he to to get a monster amount of coverage, you know, I wonder did that translate the way that we assumed it would into you know votes at the ballot box? Because he, I mean, he ended quite low, right in in the rank. So it it seems like there there may be a, a disconnect between. Obviously, we can, we can we can parse out. Uh, uh, positive media with negative media, but just media in general being in the eye and sort of monopolizing it so much that a Diane Morales can't even really, hey, I'm over here. Like that seemed that seems like it would translate more powerfully at the polls than it did. But I mean, I got a, I got a whole thing on Adams, but it, just quick on the media thing. Like, what, what do y'all think about that? Like, would not translate to to more votes. And I want to hear your Adams thing. Just just, right, just get, get into the red meat. <laughs> And then I promise I'll, I'll comment on the Diane Morales unionizing thing because I actually think that's part of progressive politics moving forward. And we have to do that. Right. So Adams, uh, I did not even, I didn't even know about Adams before the race actually happened. But Adams, he was just so uh, unabashedly part of his whole, you know, uh, how he would present himself. Yeah, when I was young, I used to get beat up by the police too elect me and then I'll stop I'll stop them from beating you all up like that that was just like that was the first thing out of his mouth in a lot of his 
commercials or, or public appearances like, yeah, I got beat up too, police brutality. And I was on the inside and I made reform and da, 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 da. But like, I have to do more research. And I wonder if you all know the reform stuff that he did inside of the police department. Was it more piecemeal or was it sort of larger incentive structure stuff? I'd probably argue the, the former, but, you know, I, I, I could be convinced otherwise. But I think what he also did was a really interesting thing. Right. Second mayor after Dinkins. Dinkins is like the, the 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 complete opposite of an Adams in that he the NYPD hated him. Right. And he obviously gave rise to Giuliani out of that conflict after Dinkins. And but but what's similar to that race and that transition is like the crime rate, sort of the homicide rate has been spiking a bit how statistically true versus how the media is portraying it. You know, I'm sure that there is um, a discrepancy there. But like it was bound to happen because of the economic problems of the pandemic. So you see Yang shift this narrative. And I think Adams probably followed after Yang more of this sort of kind of light law and order stance. You know what I mean? Like law and order light, not quite the Southern strategy, but like we need to make our neighborhood safer. Like, you you know what the subtext of that is. So he's he's sort of, I, I saw Adams as sort of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. I want to reform the police, but also, you know, these black people are fucking robbing you right now and I could come help you with that shit. Like, so it's it, it brings me back to, and just sort of wrapping up, you know, my thoughts here, it brings me back to like the crime bill issue of 94, which one could argue mass incarceration started way before that, but the 94 was a pivotal moment where, the crime bill was not had a lot of support from black people. And I think that people always forget that. And the reason it is, is because, yes, they want to completely transform or, you know, their segregated neighborhoods or, or improve them out of existence, as Baldwin would say. But we're not going to get that. But at the very least, crime is a real problem in a very resource deprived neighborhood just because of, you know, by dint of its design. So in lieu of actually desegregation, we kind of do want more police because my grandmother can't even walk down the street. So you're getting a lot of black support for the crime bill, even though they got, you know, duped with what actually happened, what they actually were promised versus what they got out of it. But I think Adams is sort of tapping into that. You know, I know you all are suffering from real economic deprivation in your segregated neighborhoods. I do want law and order for you, but it'll be like the good law and order. But I think it'll just be more of the same. And he kind of he kind of balanced those two things, reform, but also law and order light very well to where he garnered up a lot of relationship, uh, a lot of votes and, 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 and stitched together a really powerful coalition in all of these boroughs. That's my main take on Adams and why I don't trust him. Ed, don't you think, and this is what I was hinting at where I really want to see the age demographics, that right. if you had to look at the 94 crime bill and if you had to look at who backed Eric Adams, if we already know that he had you know, large percentage of poor black and Latino voters. I wouldn't be surprised if it is this older demo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> These mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers who are just like, you know what, maybe the progressives, maybe maybe this defund thing could work, but honestly, I'm just tired and we got to have something substantial. And this Eric yeah. guy, he's one of us, so why not? That to me, I think just life is really simplistic. We can Complete over overlap. like academic, yeah. but it's really just simple at the end of the day. And to me, that I was my take when I saw the numbers. Yeah. It's sort of like, let's deal in the reality of the day. And I love all of these lofty ideals of a Diane, of a Maya. But like, let's be real. We have to be the most practical voting block. 
Like we we've lived here for a long time. We kind of know our history. And I think Eric is the best choice given what's possible. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think yeah. they're the most practical voters, I've, you know, in my opinion. And I think that's sort of where the support comes from. That was so well said. I agree. And that's why I'm worried. <laughs> yeah. But I also think I'm worried, but I but I also know will be okay. And that's because of this city council, also the comptroller's mm. office, which again, another race, right. right? Didn't get as much attention, but we have and for the, in the progressive, you want to count, like if we're doing little chits in a box, like progressive win, huge progressive win. Brad Lander is right. And, yes. Is and will be an incredible leader and comptroller. And so that gives me the separation hope. of powers. Yep. Eric Adams will not be a king. We have the separation of powers. We have these different branches. So I, I love that countervailing force as well. Yeah. And it's cool. It's it's very like apropos that like the check on Eric Adams will be like the most progressive <laughs> comptroller we could have ever had elected in Brad. And so that's why I don't feel like this panic. I think if things fell differently, I would feel... I would feel very differently if we had a different comptroller in that office. And if the city council didn't look perhaps the way that it's going to look. So right. a little. Shout a out little, Brad. Yeah. But still, still concerned. <laughs> so let's get, let's get your final take on the Morales union thing. Cause we've talked about it a lot offline. And I do think to your point on progressive politics, I think it's the perfect example. So I I really am interested to hear what your take is. Okay. This is what I think from a high level and then I'm going to zoom into the labor union stuff. From a high level, when we have people running for office today, tomorrow, yesterday, and they say that they're progressive, we as progressives and the left and others who are maybe not progressive, but more inclined to vote progressive, I am calling in that we need to do some research on who these people are, especially people who are not part of the political structure, which by the way, I think is a positive. We don't want people anointed and then marching their way up for the rest of their lives. And that's it. That's what they do. We want new people. We want that spike into the democratic process, but we got to look to see like who people really are. My biggest issue with Diane was not actually even that she had had this connection to charter schools or had supported and was part of charter schools, or even that she had worked in an organization that had evicted people. And I'll tell you why. Because circumstances sometimes dictate where we work, what we believe. And as progressives, our job, if we're saying we're here calling for change, we have to keep a space open for people who step up to lead that they also could have evolved and changed. Okay. So like, I am very clear about that. And I think we can all hopefully agree that that's something that we want to see in people. Um, My problem with her was that she wasn't honest about her history. And I think that integrity is a, it's a core theme. And I will tell you that the day that I feel like I have to say to somebody something that is not true, that is the day that you will last see me doing this work because I cannot function from a place of lack of integrity because it's destabilizing in my leadership. And I, and that's just me, but also as progressives, I think that that's a core value. So I, that was my big issue with her. I also think secondarily when it comes to unions, 
I think that if you're saying you're the most progressive candidate and you have all of the platitudes and all the platforms and you say the words and 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 stand for the things, um, you probably can assume that your staff is going to want to unionize. So, you know, you should probably be a little bit thoughtful about that. There are examples of staff unionizing that actually worked. Look at Brad Lander. His staff did it early on. It's It could have been really prudent for that campaign and that leadership in that campaign to talk to Lander's campaign or others to say, how do we do this right from jump? This is going to matter. We want to pay people right. How do we do that? By also balancing the fact that we have a limited number of resources. It's really hard to pay people health insurance in campaigns. Health insurance is super expensive. We can give people supplies and, and computers and XYZ and ask that they work, you know, maybe 60 hours, not 80 or 120. But we also want to win. We want to treat people right. And we also want to understand the expectation of what a campaign is. The, my point is that we could have done that. They could have done that on the front end. And the fact that it was with several weeks to spare, it felt like it was le- it was like, F this campaign. Forget about this candidate. We care about ourselves more. Now, I am somebody who fights really hard for labor rights and wants people to have time off. I give my team probably more time off than most and don't want to overwork them because this work is hard and it's easy to burn out, especially when you're doing a campaign. However, we have to be like really realistic about what campaigns are, right? And what they require. But one is not to the exclusion of the other. I think you can unionize and do it well and still win. Lander is a perfect example of that. So I feel very disappointed in that. And I also feel like the learning for progressives moving forward is that if you have this statewide race, citywide race, really significant race, and you know that you consider yourself the most progressive and you know the people you hire are going to want to be unionized, have a plan in place from the beginning, a thoughtful one, have people advise you and also do it right. But to the staff who, what, for what they did, I like, I have to tell you to the point you made, Barbara, I feel frustrated because I don't think that she deserved that. Now, I don't know what happened inside that campaign. I don't know who was treated, how, I don't know what's true. I have no idea. Okay. Just from what I read, this is what I feel. But I think that if there if there were weeks and weeks and weeks of the staff asking to be unionized and they were ignored, then you know what? What they did was a proper reaction. Got it. But again, I think that you walking out with several weeks to spare when really at this point in time, right, there's really no progressive person other than Diane and also Maya. And so like, what are we doing here? It felt irresponsible and it felt like it could have been handled better. And so there's learnings on both sides. It's not just Diane and leadership and how to be a better leader, how to run a campaign better, how to anticipate these things, how to be prudent. What does it mean to be left? How to unionize? It's also the expectation of what it is to work on a campaign. It's not work till you drop dead. And I say that very intentionally because in 2012, I believe it was, in the presidential race for Obama's reelection, there was somebody who died at their desk. And I'm sure that there's other examples because they were overworked. So like, we have to get real about this, right? We don't want to work people until they die. That is that is even crazy for me to say that. Like, of course we don't want to do that. And yet the expectation and the demands are so intense that we really do make people sick 
and unwell and can cause people to die. It's not, it's, it's just not acceptable. So there's a balance in there and, and putting a post in the sand and saying like, this is where our values are. This is what we stand for. This is what we expect. That's reasonable. Like, let's do that. Let's make sure people are treated right and well. And also let's do it in a way where we also can win. And so that's my, my analysis and take. There's no, like, this was the winning side. This is the losing side. I just think a lot of it was avoidable and I feel disappointed. Yeah, there, there is, there's a lot of learnings uh, from this race. And so I just hope that we can all take a step back and really think through, of course, there, there needs, everyone needs to lead with decency, but then from there, understanding what the right steps are forward to get things done. So awesome having you back. Uh, we got to get you in the studio. We're, fi- we're finally getting back to the studio, but all of us are kind of around the country right now. But um, yeah, this was this was fun. So uh, to be continued. I would love to come back and also just kind of riff on a few things because I feel like there's so much more to talk. Like we, we like touched on so many things like light. We like tap. We're like evangelical. Whoop, let's go back to right. Right. Yeah, Let's go back in that evangelical <laughs> hole. Like take me in there. Oh, I yeah. Go let's there get into you. it. Let's get Yo. into it. Let's do it. Alessandra, the big, I, I want to have a special, have you back, just have a special t- uh, episode with just the topic is about the historical struggle between federal and state governments. Can we, oh like, God. I feel like you you just be amazing. And like, I want to just talk about that for one whole episode. I would love that because I'm obsessed with the 10th Amendment and federalism. And so yes. <laughs> I swear yeah. to God, like, yeah. that is like, you just like struck like one of my strings in my heart. And I feel like. We got to yeah. get into them. Let's Articles do- of Confederation, like we got to get into all of that shit. Let's. And let's- you're, you're gonna have to give some pre-reading. I, I will. That, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> oh my god, you guys! Thank you so much for having me. I, I like. I would love to see you all in person and just talk about these things and even like offline too, because there's so much. There's so much more here, and I think that my biggest fear is like we just all like we do this conversation right, and then like all right. Adams is the mayor and like, let's go. And then it's like, wait a minute, what did we learn? Where is it? Did we write it down? Did we memorialize it? What's the playbook for like the next time? Like, it's like, yo, in New York, we have a gubernatorial right around the bend. And let me not go into the fact that like, we need a new governor like now because he is really leading us down a bad path. So let's hope that we learn. And until then, stay tuned. Yes.